Once again, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, today is uh, the last that we'll spend, at least uh, at this time, we'll, this we'll be wrapping up our, our study of the book of Hebrews uh, and picking it back up again in chapter 10 in the fall. Uh, but we wrap up with the tail end, the, the second half of Hebrews chapter 9, where I pray and I hope uh, that we will be uh, re, uh, reminded and, and reinvigorated uh, in the root of our faith uh, in Christ Jesus. Our focus will be at verses 15 through uh, 28. Uh, for the sake of context, I'll begin reading in verse 13. Hear the word of our Lord. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling uh, of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer uh, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one whom, the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant of God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary... Uh, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every, every year uh, with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that, to come, uh, that, that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word of our Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we give thanks to you for your word. This word, which is pregnant in both detail and illustration, and yet poignant for the reinforcing of your truth in our minds, our hearts, for the keeping of our souls. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we would gain understanding, 
Uh, but that, that understanding, that which we understand with our minds, would fuel uh, and, and fire our hearts. We would stand amazed and even awed by your love that you have for us. And that we would respond in kind with love for you and love for others. For as you have reminded us, we love because you first loved us. Lord, root us in that. Work that within us. Shape us and change us and use us, we pray. To the glory of your name, in Christ Jesus our King. Amen. I'm sure many of you have heard the story or some expression of the old story from the Wild West days. A man who is put on trial for murder. And after the case has been presented... The judge is preparing to pronounce sentence. He asks the man who is on trial if he has anything to say in his own defense. To which the man simply replies, Well, Your Honor, I guess he just needed a killing. Now, whenever I hear that or see anything that hints of that way, at least in recent years, I can't help but to automatically think of a scene towards the end of Clint Eastwood's 1992 Western Unforgiven. If you're not familiar with that film and not familiar with the scene that I have in mind, uh, in that scene, it's, it's toward the end, Clint Eastwood and his character, Billy Money, is speaking with his, uh, with his young uh, partner, the, the Schofield Kid. The Schofield Kid had, for the first time, shot a man and had killed a man. And he's dealing with the anguish and, and the grief uh, that comes with taking of a life. And so the Schofield kid is, is kind of talking to himself and acknowledging the way that he feels. And Eastwood's money uh, says to him, it's a hell of a thing to killing a man, taking away all he's got and ever going to have. To which the Schofield kid stammering through uh, the emotions uh, the, and the weight that he is feeling trying to console himself with his words, says, well, I guess he had it coming. To which Clint Eastwood responds, we all have it coming. The great grand narrative that runs throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, is that we all have it coming. But there's one who didn't have it coming. And despite the fact that he didn't have it coming, he died, was crucified anyway. He died for our sake. He died in our place. He died for our salvation. He didn't have it coming, but he still, according to God, needed killing. One of the great theological questions that people wrestle with, not only in our current day, but ever since the crucifixion of Christ, is why did Jesus need to die? And the writer of Hebrews, here as he wraps up this chapter, gives us the answer that should satisfy not only our minds, but take hold of our hearts. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, the writer of Hebrews here says that Jesus had to die so that we 
could inherit all the promises and the benefits of the new covenant. That's what he's speaking about here at the end of uh, verse 15 and uh, moving into uh, verse uh, six, verses 16 and 17. Um, you know, he, he, he says uh, there's a death that has occurred that redeems those from transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's one of the benefits that, that comes, but the death needed to occur. And we see that more clearly as he writes this. Listen again to what the writer says in verses 16 and 17. He makes the analogy of a will. For, a will. for where a will is concerned, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. And so the writer of Hebrews here is talking about the, the promises that God made that are accompany, accompany the covenant that he entered into, the covenant that he caught with his people, the promises that are inherited by those who trust in what Christ has done. And he likens the covenant to a will. And in the Greek, it's uh, you know, one of those uh, strange um, kind of Twist, the, the, the same word for covenant is used here for will, or some of your uh, translations might say testament. Uh, and, and so the writer of Hebrews, using a play on words, is speaking of the covenant, the covenant promises, and then using it in the more uh, common or the more uh, immediate way in terms of a, a will and testament, something that we, we talk about um, in any given day in, in our, our culture. And, and he's saying that those promises that were made, we inherit but in order to inherit them, that only comes after a death is established, the same as when a will is made. And we all un understand that, that principle he's making here. A will, no matter how great the deal, no matter how great the promise, only goes into effect after the one who has made the will, the one who has written the will, the one who has made the promises, is shown to have died. Now, pulling from the archives from the Chicago Tribune on December 27th, 1995, illustrates this point very well. I'll just read it. Andre Francois Refray thought that he had made a great deal 30 years ago. He would pay a 90-year-old woman $500 a month until she died and then move into her grand apartment in a town, uh, in a town Vincent van Gogh uh, once roamed. But on Christmas, and again, the article's written on the 27th of December, but on Christmas, Refray died at age 77, having forked over $184,000 for an apartment that he never got to own or live in. On the same day, Jean Calment, uh, now the world's oldest person at 120, dined on, I'm not even going to pretend, it's fr French cuisine is all I'm going to say, in a nursing home near the sought-after apartment, northwest of Marseille in the south of France. And she need not worry about losing income, although the amount Refray already paid is more than twice the apartment's current market value, his widow is obligated to keep sending that monthly check. And if Calment outlives her, then Refray children and grandchildren will have to pay the $500 per month. Interviewed by the newspaper, uh, Calment was, uh, was asked about the, the arrangement, and she just says, in life, 
one sometimes makes bad deals. And so you have the story of a guy who, you know, late 40s, shrewd businessman, obviously with some disposable cash, sees an apartment that he wants. The lady's 90 years old. How long is she going to hang on? So he's willing to pay $500 a month. And then when she goes, and it's written up into her will, when she goes and he now inherits the, the, uh, this apartment, and she outlives him and becomes the oldest living person in the world at the time. See, a will, no matter how great the promise is, only goes into effect when the one who has written it, the one who has made the promises, has died. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying to us here. Jesus Christ and God the Father and God the Son have made these incredible promises that Jesus came and he secured, he made all of the necessary arrangements for, and these are the promises that go to God's people. But they can only be fully inherited after the one who has made these promises has proven to have died. And so the writer of Hebrews here is telling us that Jesus is the testator, he's the one who made the promises, He's the mediator, and we would also say in one sense he's the executor of that very same will. His death was necessary so that we would be able to receive, inherit all of those promises that are embedded in the covenant that God made with his people. Then he rose again in order to be the mediator of that, the executor of that, to make sure that everything that has been promised comes to those to whom it has been promised. And if you think about it, what are, what are some of those benefits? And, and the writer of Hebrews has been talking about them to the people who have received this letter, uh, because they, living in tumultuous times, sometimes their faith is fading, sometimes wondering if they're wasting their time. And he's constantly, throughout this letter, reminding them of those benefits of the covenant, that they, they can have their sins forgiven, which is one of the focal points of, of this portion of the letter. They can have a clear conscience, which was what he was speaking about in the first part of what is chapter 9. Uh, they can have peace and well-being, or the, the Hebrew word is shalom, which those two things go together. They, overall, things are good, and, and they have the peace that goes along with it. They are able to have a purpose in life because they live now not for themselves or for whoever they work for. They live ultimately for God and can do all things to his glory. They have hope because what God has promised is as certain as if it has already come to fruition, even before it has come to fruition. Because they have hope, because they have peace, they can have optimism, and ultimately heaven itself belongs to those who are part of the covenant that God made with his people that was initiated, inaugurated, enacted, mediated, and now ex uh, uh, being the executor, uh, Jesus Christ himself. And so the question is, why did Jesus have to die? And, and the answer is, so that all of the promises would go into effect, that those to whom he has promised it would receive those benefits. And, and the writer of Hebrew goes on and says, then this shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of the original readers. It shouldn't be a surprise to us because it's the way that it has been from the beginning. And he goes on and he starts talking about uh, the details of the nature of the old covenant. 
and the necessity of, of the blood to have been sprinkled, which is symbolic of death. And that the people were sprinkled, and the tabernacle was sprinkled, and all the instruments, all the furniture, everything had to be purified by the shedding of blood. It's the way it's always been. And then he wraps it up in, in verse 22, summarizing it. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And that's a very important concept for us to remember. Because in our present day, the, 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 the most common way that people think that God should deal with the sin problem is just to say, ah, never mind, forget it. It's no big deal. But God is not able to do that. So while it is absolutely very true that God is love, and we see the evidence of his love over and over again, not only in the pages in the scriptures, but in our own experience, because everything that we have that brings us sustenance comes from the hand of God. Everything that we have that brings us joy comes from the hand of God. And that goes not only to those who belong to him, but the Lord has mercy, and he, the scriptures tell us he, he provides dew and rain for the righteous and the unrighteous alike. In other words, God is in his nature so loving that he provides graciously to everyone that which sustains and brings joy. And we see the greatest expressions of his love in the fact that he redeems the people that, he, uh, that had rebelled against him by sending his own son at his own expense. And so the love of God is, should never, never, never be in question, uh, but very common in our day is to assume that that is all God is, is love, and that if there's anything that is added to love as a characteristic of God, somehow that would detract from the love of God. Nothing detracts from the love of God, but while God is absolutely in his nature love, he's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also just. And because of those things, he does not allow that which is wrong to go unpunished. He can't. Because it would violate not only his holiness, but it would violate his justice. See, we need to understand that God in his nature is not some curmudgeon who sees people beginning to have too much fun, and so he puts a, a rule in place and slaps them back in. But God, because he's love, he's given us his law, which are designed to show us the way that life is designed to be lived. And when we live in accordance with his laws, we find the most joy. And things generally work better when we are living in accordance with the way that he's designed life, rather than when we decide we're going to do it upon our own own whims. And so therefore, he must deal with the sin problem. But a question that I think comes also from this text, particularly the fact that as the writer summarizes, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The other question that we might ask is, is this, why, why blood? I think I'll answer that question with a question is, how else would God show us the seriousness and the severity of our sin? Our sin is serious, 
It is severe and it is harmful. It's harmful to us, it's harmful to other people. Sin is killing us, is what the scripture teaches us. Because of sin, there is death, and there's no one, none of us who's without sin. And God dealing with that sin problem is says that blood, the shedding of blood is necessary without it. There is no forgiveness of sin. And, and I, in this, I, I really like the, the King James expression of it, because rather than saying forgiveness, it uses the word remission. And without going into a word study, I, I think that provides an imagery that is poignant for us, that, that we get. When we hear the word remission, what comes to our minds? But cancer. Someone is diagnosed with cancer. Some of you have been diagnosed. Some are dealing with it even now. I have in the past and have been in remission for how long I've been here? 15, 16 years now. And so the word remission is often associated with cancer. The one who is in remission means that they are no longer being infected or affected and being killed by the effects of their cancer. The cancer is not at work, whether that is a permanent remission or a temporary remission. When somebody is in remission, the effects of the cancer are no longer taking its toll on their body and on their lives. And I think it's an appropriate imagery because sin does the same thing in us. In a, it, it, it ravishes us in our mind, in our heart, in our soul. And the effects of it sometimes become physical as well. And unlike cancer, it is contagious because my sin not only can provoke your sin to come out, but my sin, even if you act in a righteous way, can cause you grief and cause you harm and certainly can cause you pain. And because God is love, he must deal with the sin because the people that he created after his own image, those who are the objects of his affection, they're killing themselves and they're killing one another simply because they have this sin issue. And for God to simply say, ah, forget it, would be incredibly unjust, particularly to the people who are being affected by sin. Now, imagine that there is a judge who is sitting on his or her bench and someone comes in and who is clearly and obviously guilty of this great offense. Let's just say that they, they have, uh, you know, broken into a home, uh, killed a member of the family, and then stolen some of the goods, and it's all on the security camera. But now having the prosecution making the case, the defense saying, there's not a whole lot we can do. The judge just comes in and says, you know, I'm feeling generous today. Clearly, there's evidence, but I'm just going to dismiss the whole thing. I'm just going to say, ah, let's just all forget it. Now, the person who's guilty might feel a sense of relief at the moment, and those who love and are close to that person might feel a sense of relief. But what about the people who are affected? What about the people who uh, lost the, the family member, not to mention whatever goods were taken? Are, are they feeling the love? Are they feeling the benefit? Are they feeling that justice has been done? In, in no way. God deals severely with our sin, 
because it is such a serious, serious issue. We get comfortable with it. But the fact that there is no remission, which also means that when we die to sin, we are able to now live by God's grace to say no to sin on any given day. We don't live sinless lives, but we, there's not, when we sin, it's not because we must. It's because we choose to, because we do. Because we're no longer in remission. We're no longer being, uh, um, does it have authority over us? But it is still serious. And so there is no forgiveness, no remission without the shedding of blood. Now, I think before we move on and wrap up, it's important to say this, is that the, the phrase of the blood of Christ itself sometimes means different things to different people. For, for some, the phrase the blood of Christ is, is, a, is a cliche. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. We talk about it, and there's no thought that is, is given to what it signifies. That it doesn't necessarily bring to mind the severity of our, our sin and that, that God must deal with. For others, particularly those who are unfamiliar with Christianity, the, the phrase, the, the blood of Christ, certainly would sound strange, uh, especially the fact that we gather and we sing songs about it. And for still others, though, the phrase, the blood of Christ, is almost like a, a magical incantation or superstition. As one teacher put it, people think it's like waving a bag of garlic in front of the face of a, of a vampire. You know, we just kind of wave that around and something about the, the phrase itself or even the substance itself. I think it's important that we recognize that with the right, with, when God is speaking about the, the blood of the sacrifice and, and even the blood of Jesus Christ, he's not talking about the, the tangible physical liquid that comes out of the body, that the power is in that. See, blood represents life. Blood is necessary to life. And the power is in the life that is given. And so the blood of Christ, the blood that is shed, is shorthand for the blood, uh, for, uh, is for, for, for life, the life that is laid down, the life that is given. It's not that there were, you know, supernatural entities into the blood of Jesus who, as a carpenter, no doubt at some point or another, cut himself. And so if you have a home that was built, you have a super doorway entrance because the blood of Christ is on it. Or that, like in the movie Spider-Man, I think it's, that's the entity that somebody gets a little splattering of uh, whatever the substance is, and all of a sudden it makes a, a transformation if that's the case, then think of the soldiers, particularly the soldier who took the spear and the hammer and nailed Jesus' wrist to the cross. There's no way that there was no blood that came upon him. Well, the one who confirmed Jesus' death took the spear and shoved it into his side, out of which we're told that blood and water came mingling out. There's, there's no way. There was no splatter that would have been on them, that they would have been transformed by the, the physical blood itself. It's not that the physical capacity, Jesus being fully human, had blood the same as you and I did, and yet his blood was shed, 
because it is through the shedding of blood uh, that the sacrifice is offered. In this case, as he being the spotless lamb, his blood was necessitated to be shed so that his life would be taken and that we would be able to inherit all of the promises that God has given to us. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of our sin. And so the writer of Hebrews is reminding the readers of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he as the high priest made and then laid his own life down, uh, that his life was laid down. And Jesus himself said, I have the authority, I lay it down, but I will take it back up again. And he goes on, the writer of Hebrews goes on, and he starts to say, here's how, here, here are other truths that are related to that, and here's how we ought to respond. So picking up in, in verse um, 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Otherwise, we talk about the necessity of the sacrificial system. But the heavenly things themselves, the better sacrifices, and he's again reminding us again that Jesus is the high priest who entered into uh, the tabernacle in heaven. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Uh, Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. Now, the writer here is, is telling us the superiority of the blood of Christ. It was the one that was promised. He was the promised spotless lamb. His sacrifice, his life laid down, as indicated by his blood having been shed, is the news that everybody has been waiting for. Tragic and unjust as it is, it is the death that sets the will in motion. And the writer is emphasizing something to them because the people were thinking, maybe I'll go back to the religious rituals and and the sacrificial system. I'll relate to God on the basis of sacrifices rather than believing and trusting in the one sacrifice. And he's saying, no, this sacrifice was offered once for all, which is indication of its superiority and its perfection. And it's important because... There are some who teach that every time we come to the table that Jesus is somehow crucified all over again. And I don't want to open up a theological debate. It's not really about the theological debate. But the writer of Hebrews here is very clear. He, he, he doesn't come to do this repeatedly. He offered his life once for all, and that was sufficient. And, and the reason that it's significant is that if... Jesus was somehow offering himself, making himself the sacrifice over and over again, it would signify to us that what he did once for all was not sufficient. There was something inadequate about it, in which case we need to look somewhere else for hope. Or maybe at a more personal level, we look at it this way. You just received news of of a very wealthy uncle who has died, and you're called to meet as a family, to hear the reading of the will, and then your uncle shows up. But the next week you hear again, well, he's now died, you come back together again, and he shows up again. How long is this gonna go on before you feel like you're emotionally being jerked around? 
I have a little bit of experience with this in a very odd way. When I first moved to be the pastor of a church in Bristol, I was there for uh, two weeks. And I got a call from the guy who had been uh, the interim and told me that a man named um, uh, Silas died uh, and uh, had gone to the hospital and things had not... I don't remember exactly what he said, but I do know the message that I got and the message that I called uh, all of the elders and the people in the church and said, Silas died. And so I called and tried to reach the family to go see where they were. And I couldn't find them at the hospital and they were going to go back home and, you know, and rest. And I thought, that's good. I found out that I missed the guy's last name was Die. He had not died. So at the prayer meeting that night, I had to explain to everybody, Silas got better after I had already called them and told them that he had died earlier that day. Now, people were relieved at that point, but, you know, imagine Silas had left a, a great will. You'd still be sad that he's gone, but you kind of jerk around. Jesus has died once for all. He's not continuing to make the sacrifice because that would indicate that it was inadequate and we wouldn't be able to deal with it anyway because it would be like stopping and starting, stopping and starting. It is with the, with the, the verification of the death that the will now gets set in motion. The fact that Jesus then rose in order that he would be the executor of it changes nothing. He has died. But now he lives. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us it's not that Jesus isn't doing anything these days. He's no longer offering the sacrifice. What he is doing is he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Seat means his work of sacrifice is done but he's now interceding on behalf of his people. It's part of his mediation work. And he mediates not by making sacrifices over and over again as the priests of old did, but by pointing to that one sacrifice that has already been offered on our behalf, on the behalf of everyone who believes. And so in each instance, if the accuser comes before God and says, look what they did, look what he did, look what she did, all the things that come into your mind when you wrestle with your past sins and your struggle with present sins and knowing that the accuser is saying, look at that guilt. Jesus doesn't say, okay, you know, let's, let me get back and offer the sacrifice. He says, sacrifice has already been offered. Atonement has already been made. Payment is made in full. That's the intercession that he is doing, not because God the Father needs reminding, but for the justice to be declared and for all of heaven and for the enemy himself to be reminded, justice has been done, the sacrifice was made, mercy has been extended because of the love of our God. So what is it that we ought to do? How do we, how do we respond to this? Well, the writer goes on and says that Jesus is going to return. He reminds us that his first coming was for the purpose of paying the penalty, paying the ransom, but the second coming is to rescue us. And so we're in between here. We're paid for, but we haven't received the full payment of the inheritance yet. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that what we should be doing is waiting eagerly for his return. That's what he says at, at the very end here in verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with those sins, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. And what this means is that as we have the promise of heaven already purchased and secure for us, it's like you've bought a new home, you've paid the mortgage, you've even paid the mortgage off, you haven't moved in yet, but it's yours. It's coming, that day is coming. And we wait eagerly for it, even as we relate to him now. 
And practically speaking, that means that we regularly cry out, Maranatha means, oh Lord, come. When things are not good, when you're having a bad day, Maranatha is the appropriate prayer. Lord, come. I, I want everything. The Lord is coming in his time, but as we connect, it's part of our connecting with him and relating, waiting eagerly for him. We wait eagerly for him on the basis of what he has already done. Let's wrap up with this. Charles Spurgeon reminds us this. The atonement by the blood of Jesus is not just an arm of the Christian faith. It is the very heart of it. And Christ has come once to pay the price. He will come again to deliver all the promises. This is what we wait for. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for your love for us and pray that you would continue to impress this truth upon us, that we might have hope and joy and peace and all that is promised. To the glory of your name, we pray in his name. Amen.